So we uh, this year have been reading through the whole whole Bible. And so if you're if you're new here, or maybe if you've fallen off, you're unaware. We've been reading through the whole thing, uh, and we uh, we do readings every day. And there's a podcast that we listen to. It takes about 20 minutes a day to read the chunk and then listen to the podcast and have it explained. Uh, it's been really good. Those of you who've been doing it, is it is it worth it? Has it been good? Yeah, it's been great, right? And so here we are in the the climax. We've been saying that the whole time. The Bible is one unified story that does what? Points to King Jesus, right? And here we are, King Jesus. And so uh, every week as the shepherds get together, man, we're like, man, we're in the climax. And it's so hard to to know exactly what to land on. And so like every week we pray about it and wherever the spirit moves, then this is what we land on. Um, It's really hard not to talk about the entirety of Mark 9. Uh, We're going to say a little bit about the transfiguration because I think it really sets this up. I want to talk first about uh, just uh, mountaintop experiences. Who's... you familiar with that phrase? People say mountaintop. Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase before. Is that just a Christian phrase? You guys hear that outside of the church world? Like I grew up going to like all the super summers and the youth camps and stuff. And there was always like, or the promise keeper events with my dad and uh, promise keepers. Anyone? Anyone? Okay. So like there was this idea of like, I had this high mountaintop experience. Then they'd even teach at some of these experiences, man, when you get back to regular life and you go back to school and you've got your cell phone in your hand the whole time and everything's hard at school or whatever, then like, what are you going to do? Like, and so you got this mountaintop experience. And, And I think that I experience in life that, that all of life, I mean, we, we can talk about it religiously and, and from spiritual experiences, highs and lows and, and everything spiritual. I know that everything's formative, but um, I think that we also experience just in day-to-day life, week-to-week life. And in our family, we do dinner time. We say, hey, what, what are your highs and lows? Uh, we also have kind of evolved to say, what are your highs and lows? And my kids have other ones. What is it? Middles and chestnuts. And they don't want to talk to me right now gym because we go to the gym so it was your gym experience oh my gosh yeah so but then we also ask what are your feelings why am i telling you this on my notes but we ask what their feelings are because kids don't have a point of reference for feelings by the way and the vast majority of kids by the time they're 12 the first emotion they experience and the first go-to emotion they go to is anger which we all know is a secondary emotion this isn't my notes i don't know why i'm telling you this maybe some parent needs to hear this and so if your kids don't have language if you work with kids around kids if they don't have language for feelings they're going to learn anger first because it's a prideful emotion. It makes us feel powerful and it masks how we're actually feeling, right? And so we do with our kids, we ask how you're feeling. Uh, Gosh, man, come back. So highs and lows, mountaintop experiences. And for me, lately, my family's been experiencing that most specifically with owning our first home. And I wanted to walk into uh, an experience we had in the last like 48 hours because when I was reflecting on like highs and lows, I thought, man, I could tell this time that I was on a mission trip and I could tell this time that, you know, this myth medical thing happened. But really, I mean, real nuts and bolts of life, you have highs and lows every day. We just kind of get callous towards them. We don't want to talk or think about them. Um, We don't want to deal with our emotions, all those sort of things, which is why we do it with our kids, because it also forces my wife and I to actually talk about these things. Um, We are homeowners, and that's a a, a wild ride for us. I'm sorry, like, if that makes you look down on us that I'm 37 and finally own a house, but this is where we are, okay? Student debt's a real thing, so get over it. It's what it is. Um, I wear green flannels. This is is who I am. So we own a home, and we're we're doing this this whole thing, and we had this experience where Nikki wanted a sectional. It's like a hyper-huge couch thing. Some of you are like, yeah, I know the sectional, right? So 
uh, I had a really busy weekend one weekend. I was really tired, but she was like, it was uh, after a Sunday, and normally I wake up really early on Sunday, so normally we take a nap when we get home for like 20 minutes, like a power caffeine nap. Look at the science. It's worth it. So anyway, I was doing that, and then she was like, no, I, we need to go pick up this sectional. I was like, cool. It's exactly what I want to do right after church, but that's okay. I called Jimmy Lane, and he was like, yeah, man, I don't know if he remembers a Sunday, but I was like trying to get, have him be my excuse. It's like, well, man, if you don't feel like it, if you don't want to, and he was like, let's go. It's like, dang it, Jimmy. Dang it. So we go. And so this is like a low for me because it's like, I don't want to be in this valley of obtaining furniture. It's a nightmare to me. Everything we're doing, buying a house, obtaining furniture, it's the opposite of moving into a van and being a gypsy, which is what was safe for me for so long in my life. And so we just got slowly pulling me into being committed to everything. And I just, I don't like it. So we go and get the sexual and the whole thing, like we had to take it. Just imagine the worst stair experience. I won't explain it to you, but all these awful stairs and we get to my house and we have to take it apart to get it into my current house. Um, we had to take the legs off and then you know, the sliding door. We had to take the little rubber things out. And that was enough. So I had to take the handle off. It's just a low, just sectional. It should be a curse word. So we get it in our house. And then over the last two or three weeks, all of my family, all of us, all six of us, including the pregnant one, we can sit. She's so beautiful. Look at her. She can, we can all sit on this six and a half of us. We can all sit on this couch and we can watch like the Lego show or we can just sit and be ridiculous together. And it's been like, that's been a high for me. Like this sectional, like, whoa, we're all just sitting together. And if you, if you have family at all, you know, the meaning of just all being together, just sitting together and doing something together. So that's been, that's been a high. And then we had to move it to the new house. So a couple days ago, my, uh, my buddy Tim was in town for a little bit. We load it up. We get it to the new house. And we know we got to take the feet off. We do the sliding door thing. We get to the new house. And we get it. And we've got to take it up these small steps to get it to this upstairs area. And it's just not going to fit. And I've got to leave. And so I was like, hey, Adam knows everything about stuff probably. So Nikki, ask Adam to take the side of the door stuffs off and figured out. Nikki texts back later that evening and says, hey, we are a quarter, was a quarter of an inch short. So I start thinking this, this, this high of being on this sectional together, this mountaintop experience, we and Nikki really wants upstairs. Our option are is to redo furniture stuff, which I just did that. It's a nightmare. We're not going to buy new furniture and go to Columbia and pick it up. No, no, no. We are getting this upstairs. So I learn about door jams. Raise your hand if you know what a door jam is. I know as of two days ago, and it turns out you can take these things off. So I watched some YouTube videos like any good millennial, and we get the door jam off. And most of the pieces are still together, so we get it off. And yeah, yeah, I feel like that was a big win. And then it goes. And here's the cool, again, we had a high now because, see, my buddy Tim helped me move, and that's a big deal to me. And then uh, Sarah, she helps me. We get this thing upstairs, and then it's up there. It's like, yes! We're back to the mountaintop. We're all going to sit on this thing. It's going to be great. And then I spent three hours yesterday putting the door jam back on. And Morgan was there. And I was like, where's Sean? Sean probably even knows the secrets to door jam. I'm like, come on. The dude's probably built, like, just so frustrated. Everyone that I know that builds houses, Jason, like, where are these people at? Something about shims. And if, if the shims are in, it doesn't work. But then if I take the shims out, then it shuts. And that doesn't logically make sense to me because I'm supposed to use the shims to make it shut right. So if you know, please come up to me afterwards and say, hey, this is how you need to do this. Right now it shuts, right? We're kind of back on the mountaintop of everything maybe being right. But who knows? Because I got to put the trim back on. And maybe that'll make me just flip my lid. <laughs> so now you know. Why, why do we, let's take a step back though. Think of your high of the last week, whatever it is. 
or today. Um, this is obviously your high. Look at it. You're in the house of the Lord. We're worshiping together. Why are these things our highs? Why is it a high for me that we're all sitting on the section? Why is it a high for me that Sarah and I got to pick up something heavy and take it upstairs? What makes this a high? It all hinges, pun intended, door, on get it? It all hinges, oh, that was bad. It all hinges on our vision, what we're looking to. We decide, hey, this is my schema. This is what's so important to me. My high is that I finally got my promotion. My high is that my family all had dinner without yelling at each other. My high is that uh, the, uh, my girlfriend didn't yell at me today. My high is that I did whatever it is. It's based off our vision. We say, this is what's most important to me. And then we decide. And you know where I'm going with this. I talk about this every week. We're like God. We decide good from evil. And so how do we know if our mountaintop experiences are our highs, they're depending on good things? Well, we said last week, we say every week, you have to look to, to what? Look to Jesus. Say every week. You'll hear me say every week. Look to Jesus. Now, we unpacked that last week because we don't literally just mean this passive like, oh, yeah, big guy upstairs, Jesus. I get it. Hung on the cross, Easter, got it. No, no, no. See, when Jesus is saying, do you have ears to hear? Back to what Nathan was just saying in our call to worship. Jesus is calling us to look to him, to hear from him, to listen to him, to believe in him, to obey in him. This is what it means to look to Jesus. Jesus says, you have ears to hear. Look, he says, right? Just as the serpent was lifted up, so the son of man, he looked to him. This is Jesus saying, look to him. And so we have this transfiguration. You can read about it in the verses before. I think it's Mark 2, uh, Mark 9, 2 through 13. And Jesus is transfigured. Just real quick, tell me the story. Who's, uh, who's up there? Jesus has this transfiguration moment. And the author chooses to say, his clothes are whiter than any launderer can make them white. Which is a super weird phrase, but it's in the Bible, so whatever. Super white Jesus. He's got all the glowing and his clothes are so white, it's incredible. And then what happens? Who appears with him? Moses. Oh, you guys are so passionate. You like Moses. Man, you're Moses people. Okay, but who's the other one? Elijah. Man, you guys are excited. I need to tell more stories of my door jam failures. This is good. Moses and Elijah. Now, we can unpack that and say Moses represents uh, the law, and Elijah represents the prophets, and so the summation of the Old Testament revelation from the Lord is here with Jesus. Some scholars say also Moses represents those who died to go to glory, and Elijah represents those who were caught up in heaven without death, right? Either way, we see here that these people come to meet with Jesus and there's some special thing that's happening in those Elijah. There's some complete, some finality. There's something there. They're on a mountain. And if you've been following us, we talked about the links all through scripture. Mountains are where you connect with God all through scripture. Eden was on a mountain, right? The tabernacle, they, when they went up to in Sinai, Sinai was a mountain. Horeb was a uh, same mountain, gotcha, right? And so it's all a mountain, and this is the whole, the, uh, Abraham, he goes up on mountains to build high places to God, right? And then the issue with idols all through kings is that they had idols on mountains is the issue. And so Jesus is on a mountain, right? And he's there with Moses and Elijah. Something's happening, and it should give us both this like, oh, I've got it figured out, and this like, Ooh, I don't quite get it. What's going on here? Because it's this big, powerful, glorious thing that's happened. Here's what stood out to me. We could talk about this a lot. But I want to talk about what stood out to me. They're all there and the cloud of God comes. What do you remember about the cloud of God? Name some times there's been a cloud of God. Old Testament readers, the temple. And before that, the other T, tabernacle. And before that, on Mount 
Sinai, right? God's presence has been with clouds all through scripture. So when this cloud appears, all the Hebrew boys there, they're like, oh, oh, there, there, it's, oh my gosh, this is the thing. This is God. Whoa, it's a big deal, right? When Moses asked to see God's glory, he's not allowed to fully look on God. He can't fully be in the Lord's presence or it will, it'll kill him. And when Elijah's on the mountain, we preached on this, and God comes and appears, he appears, there's several different things that happen. You have wind, and you have, have earthquakes, and you have fire. You have all these huge things moving, right? It talks about Elijah covering his face. When God appears, there's these big moments that happen, and it separates us. But during the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are standing there. They're there. And they're there because Jesus is there. And to save a whole sermon worth of stuff that I'd love to talk about the transfiguration, Jesus was transfigured so that he could transform us. Jesus is standing there as the finality, as the culmination to the law and the prophets of the Moses and Elijah. All of this, Jesus stands on the mount of God before God, and Peter, James, and John are allowed to be there because Jesus is there. And as they acknowledge that, it ends up just being Jesus there because Jesus won. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so maybe you're here today, and this is where you stop. You say, man, I just, I keep trying to do this thing on my own. I keep trying to draw near to God. I keep trying to possess, to control, to... No one stands before the Father because he'll wreck you. His holiness will melt you, obliterate you, destroy you. But Peter, James, and John get to stand there before the transfigured Jesus because Jesus Christ is the one who takes on all of their sin, all of their rebellion, all of their lack of holiness. And they become holy because of Jesus. They get to stand there amongst the presence of God. Eventually, they have to come down from the mountain. We're going to read in Mark 9. If you want to turn to Mark 9, um, Ron just read it for us. We're going to read it again. And when they came to the disciples, come down the mountain, mountaintop experience, now they're back down. They came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. Catch that. They immediately walk into junk, just junk, arguing, religious people not agreeing, just, this is just, the, the, it didn't, they didn't come down to a nice meal together. They didn't come down to, you know, sing Kumbaya and have a, you know, a part two. Of it. No, they come down to argument and chaos and disorder, which feels like the golden calf that should be in the back of our minds. Like, oh, they're coming down. There's something off here. This isn't right. There's not unity. There's not, there's not goodness. We just saw this seemingly finality of something. Jesus is finishing with most like, oh my gosh, we want to make tabernacles. Oh, it's such a beautiful moment. Now they come down, religious people arguing. Ah, religious people, they're spitting and moaning. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, they're greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Just saying, what are, you, what are we arguing about here? And it's, it's unclear to me and to some scholars who Jesus is talking to in, in each of these times he responds until he talks to the Father. And I think that's interesting. Is Jesus saying to his disciples, who are you arguing with? Is he saying to the crowd? Like, who's he talking? I don't, I think, I think that's the point. It invites us into the story. Places ourselves in. He says, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, get to the, get to the crux of the issue. Teacher, I brought my son to you for he has an evil spirit that makes him mute. And whatever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able have the disciples cast out demons thus far? Yes. Jesus already gave them that power. Something's up. They're arguing with the Pharisees. 
and they can't cast out this demon. What's, what's going on? It's a big deal. They come down to all this chaos. And if you look at all the characters here, you have the scribes, the religious folks, the, the people who should have it all figured out. The disciples, the Jesus followers, right? They're, they're kind of our, our understanding in the stories. When you see disciples, you, it's like we kind of relate to them. Like, ah, they're, they're struggling. They don't get it, but they keep pushing in. We talked last week on the reason the disciples were able to understand is because the Spirit revealed it to them because they kept leaning into Jesus. So the disciples, they're here. You have the crowd, and then you, you have this guy who's got a demon-possessed son or, or a son with some ailment that's spiritual. Um, it's, it's seems vague thus far at this point in the story. And they're all arguing. But this guy is seeking that his son is healed. And it's trying to empathize with the characters of the story for a minute. The scribes are those who, they've got it figured out. Maybe you could modernize this in your head, but they're the religious people who know. They know the book. They've got it all figured out. They know exactly how things should go. And you've got the disciples who've been following Jesus, and they know how things should go. They've cast out demons they, they, so they, they got it, and they're arguing back and forth, as you can imagine. And then you've got the crowds who are just like, what, what, is, what is going on here? Like, who's going to win? Ding, ding, ding. You know what I mean? They get trying to figure out. And then you've got this guy who's just like, have you ever known someone you love that's got an ailment? Like, what if, what if your child, what if someone you love, your niece, your nephew, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, someone you're really close to, what if you knew that they had something that was just tormenting them day and night from childhood? And you know, oh, this person could probably heal them. You'd forget the probably, and you'd just go do it. Say, I did, I'll do anything. This is a great option, right? And this guy's just there. And I think it's interesting in this story. This guy just wants his son to be healed. And all these people who are around all this religious stuff are just arguing. And I think there's a message for the church in that. And we'll get to it as we continue to unearth what it means to look to Jesus. But I'm fascinated. I'm, I'm about to walk in. We're going to go to, uh, to a, a gathering of religious people for an annual meeting uh, this week. And, and I'm fascinated by how quickly we want to take what we know and what makes us feel prideful and powerful and smart and interject that. And you watch. You watch your Facebook arguments, your TikTok, your Instagram, all these people arguing. How often do those things turn to Jesus and what his word actually says? Or... If it is talking about his word, how often is there humility to say, man, can we, can we lean into this and understand what God's trying to speak to it through this? Versus people just abusing each other with what they know. There's a message here about looking to Jesus. When Jesus appears on this scene, everything changes and stuff gets done. When Jesus shows up, stuff gets done. So Jesus is here. I want you guys to take, take this in in case you wrestle with this, because you should. Look at me. There are demons. There are spiritual forces that you don't know about. And I could talk till you're blue in the face about demonology. We could do a whole sermon. The reason that we didn't go through Hebrews last year is because Hebrews 1 is all about how angels are not are lesser than Jesus. And we talked about shepherds, how it would be such a difficult task at that time. We chose to go through Judge and said, we felt like our church would be a hard time at that to take a, go right from going through Sermon Mount to immediately going right through, hey, here's demonology. Like, it's really tricky because we are all also uh, overwhelmed with a bias of how this works because of Bugs Bunny cartoons or because of you've got, got the little demon crunk over here and the little angel crunk over here and they're arguing back and forth. That's a reference to a movie you might not get, but you understand the demon angel thing and they're arguing back and forth. We import so many ideas. You want to do something fun? Google image the history of how people have drawn Satan based off scripture. It's fascinating. You go from just a beautiful dude 
who's around in different paintings way back when to slowly a dude that's got like these crooked legs, almost like a goat, like, man, what, what am I doing right now? Anyway, you go to that and then you go to, to like the, the horns and, the, and all of a sudden now you get the Satan that you're seeing all around. Like if I say Satan, if, if your kid said, I want to be a demon for Halloween, you know exactly what that looks like. You could draw me a picture right now. It involves pitchfork, red, horns, and we import all this ideas into here. Stop. When you study scripture, there's a few things you need to know. There are spiritual forces beyond what you can know. And you can tell me all the time, here's the six things I know about demons. We actually don't know very much about it. And you can talk to the best demonology expert all over, and they'll tell you there's a limitation of what we can know. Here's what we do know. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. Jesus has all authority. And the demons cower before him. The demons aren't cowering before the disciples in this situation. And I think there's a reason why that Mark tells us pretty quickly. But they cower before Jesus. They tremble. And so we need to understand there is this thing here. Now, we need to deal with this because when we read this, some of our shepherds called out and we're saying, man, this sounds like seizures to me. I mean, raise your hand. Be honest. It's not wrong. When you read this, who, who in the medical world here is like, this sounds like this kid's having seizures. Raise your hand. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Now, okay, so who's right? Are we in the West right because we figured out uh, seizures and epilepsy and those things? Or are they right because they're super spiritual and we're not? Yes. Here's something you need to understand. In the world of the Bible, right, they don't have this arrogance of because we've mapped the human genome, we've ruled out the spiritual realities. No, 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 that's us in the West. We believe that because we have all this medical knowledge that we've ruled out the possibility of angels and demons. No, no, here's the reality. In their world, when someone had a broken leg, it was physical and spiritual. And that's why they would come to Jesus and say, hey, who sinned? So this would happen, right? Clearly it's broken and evil, People shouldn't slowly get cancer and die. Like, like we shouldn't have stillborn babies. This shouldn't happen. But it's arrogant for us to say, oh, we figured out that must be your grandma's sin. Or that must be because you're still drinking. That's way too arrogant. But it's also arrogant to say, it's just medical. Like ask the doctors, they'll tell you. Because there are things that happen in the medical field every day. I know people in it. I can talk to my doctor and point at them. And they'd say, I don't, I don't know. We know this, but there's a limitation, Right? Just like with demons and angels, there's a limitation of what we can know. And so here's what we come back to. Whether it's medical, spiritual, I argue, yes. Whatever you got going on. You get that lump report this week, and you're like, oh man, okay, but the doctor says we can do these surgeries, these surgeries, these surgeries. You best be praying about it. Because no matter what medical thing you have going on, Jesus still has all authority. Not to do what you want, but to do what is for his glory. And so we submit to him, right? And if you've got something going on, like, I can't fully understand this. Why is my child, why is my, my girlfriend, why, why is my desires constantly against the Lord? Maybe I've got a demon in me and I need to get people to exercise and I've got to go through. Stop. First, you've got to ask, are you looking to Jesus? Because when Jesus shows up, we see healings, we see demons fleeing. Jesus has all authority. And so to save a whole conversation about all that, Please remember first, Jesus has all authority. And when you read the scriptures, you're not finding about how we have all this power and authority and boldness that we do it all. Because the more power and authority we get as humans, we wreck it over and over and over. We only have power because Jesus has all authority. And so anything we ever do, we do it in Jesus' name. That's why you hear Christians, if you're wanting to say, in Jesus' name. Because it's a reminder to us, Jesus knows his name. Jesus knows his power. We have to remind ourselves, this is in Jesus' name. Because we forget. We think it's in David's name, or Memorial Baptist Church's name, or Great Grandpa's Faith's name. Pfft. It's in Jesus' name. Jesus is the only name that conquers. Amen? Amen. Amen. Verse 19. And Jesus answered, answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? <sighs> Bring him to me. 
Who's Jesus talking to? The disciples, the scribes, the crowd? That's the point. Yes, I think that's the point. Because there's different faithlessness here. The issue of this story is faithlessness and prayer. We'll talk about that here in a minute, which is associated. But then you immediately get a response of what maybe faithfulness should look like. Because you would say, man, if faithless is the issue and there's a lack of faith here, then you might want to say, man, if I'm being honest, I don't believe actually. I struggle. This is hard for me. I want to believe. In fact, I don't, shh, don't tell anyone. I'm actually pretending. I'm here. I'm watching from home. And I, it makes me feel good. But I, I don't know. If, if everything hit the fan, I don't, don't really know if I believe this, right? Honestly. Keep reading. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately and convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Catch this, verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus, how long? Do you think Jesus knows how long this has been happening? So is, is Jesus playing patronizing games here? Just like, ah, let's, before we get to the healing, we've got to have the interview here. Let's talk. How Jesus is showing compassion. Jesus is meeting him where he's at before the guy even asks for compassion. Because here in a moment, he asks. He says, can you show us compassion? Jesus says, how long is this happening? Jesus stoops down, invites himself into this guy's story. And that's such an important thing to see about Jesus. Because Jesus just called out, this whole group of people is faithless. And whether he's talking to every single person, the disciples or scribes, faithlessness is an issue to Jesus. But he decides to still step in and lean in with this guy. Say, how long has this been happening? Jesus asks you now, how long has this been happening? He's not ignorant of your struggles. He wants to be with you. He is with you. That's why he goes out of his way to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The last thing he said is, I am with you always. That's all the time, whether or not you choose to believe it, even when you're sinning, even when you're, you're doing all the secret things. He's with you always. He's leaning into this guy, trying to have a right relationship with him. Say, hey, hey, what's going on here? And the man says, from childhood. This has been going on since childhood. And has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Compassion. It's the word we looked at last year and we looked at some of the attributes of God. God defines himself as compassionate. And the Hebrew word means wumi. Woo me. It means that he has compassion like a mother carrying a child, a nursing mother. And that might be a weird image for you that God has this deep, intense femininity about him, but get over it because God created it, right? And so God has this intense woominess. The, the Hebrew or the Greek word here is impossible to say. It's like splagaki gadosagiki. It's, it's like, it's got splagach. We talked about it a year ago. You know it's a weird word. Splagach, but it means guts. And when he says, will you have compassion on us? He's saying, will you feel it? in the deepest part of you, in your guts. Will you connect with what's going on? Compassion also means to suffer with. Will you enter in and suffer with me, Jesus? If you can, please step towards us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for one who... All things are possible for one who believes. The word possible is... Dunateos in Greek. Sorry, I had to think there's a Y there and it gets confusing. Dunateos. And it means able, powerful, mighty, strong. Jesus is not saying, 
There can be miracles when you believe. So whatever you want, just believe it and it happens. Poof! There you go. The reason grandma suffered and died is because you didn't believe. The reason your toes still hurt when you walk is because you didn't believe. The reason you're getting old is because you didn't believe. That's not what he says. Jesus is saying there is strength, power, ability, and might. For all things to those who believe. There is strength, power, and might. There is something beyond you that happens when you believe. That doesn't mean you get what you want. That doesn't mean that everything you think should happen happens because you're still limited. You don't know, right? It begs the question then, believe in what? Or maybe believe in who? Last week, Mark 1.15, what did Jesus been teaching the whole time? The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There is power in believing in the gospel. And the crux message of the gospel is that King Jesus has all authority because he's the one who is God, who stepped down to suffer and die. Our punishment, our sin, take on everything, all the junk, all the doubt. He takes it all on. He rises again, being enthroned at the right hand of God, He has all authority. All things are possible for those who believe. So this father, he cries out immediately. The father child, he cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Say, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him. So he never enters him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. Because Jesus has the power to raise. And he not only overcomes the evil and the tragedy in this boy's life, but he also raises him up, picks him up. I'm so focused on what I can't get past. I probably, I didn't start with this because I didn't want to over, uh, over inject anything in the sermon. This is probably my favorite story in the Bible. And I, I know I've said that before up here, and that's why I have the caveat probably. But I definitely relate to this guy more than anyone else in Scripture. Maybe I relate to Peter quite a bit because he puts his foot in his mouth a lot. He's pretty arrogant. And he says a lot of things he shouldn't. He gets really too passionate too soon. And maybe that was a different me a while ago. But now I just love that this guy cries out to Jesus. I believe, but I'm riddled with doubt, but I struggle. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my... This guy is weighed down with the doubt. And he has some faith mixed in. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus say, Hey, come back when you're 60%. You're like 58 now, boyo. But you come back, Bubba. Come back when you're 60% and we'll see. Go, go pray. Go clean your feet. Go rub some oil on your head. Eat some kale. Come back. No, no, no. Jesus says... He heals him. He heals his son. That's what he does. Jesus does because he has all authority. This guy comes and says, I want to believe. I'm doing everything I can. Help my unbelief. And that's enough for Jesus to heal his son. Of all the faithlessness, the lack of faith that Jesus mentions and he's concerned about in verse 19, this guy is the answer to that. This guy is the one who says, I believe everything I have, I'm offering it to you. But I got to be honest. I'm also going to need help because I can't even fully believe on my own. I struggle. 
And doesn't that sound so much like what we heard from the disciples last week? Doesn't that sound so much like what we've seen all through Scripture? That we are consistently lacking. That we have to have a humility for God. Because the greatest folks in the Bible, the more their confidence is in themselves, the more they get everything they've ever wanted, the more they blow it. No matter how comfortable your life is, no matter how good you think you are, if you don't have this posture, if you don't tell, if you don't have anything in your life, you can take the Lord and say, help me with my unbelief. Maybe you're missing something. Because to humbly stand before a holy God means that there might be some distance there. There might be some things that we don't understand. And maybe that's you. You need to acknowledge, help my unbelief. I thank God that we have the story in Scripture. Because it reminds us that Jesus is pursuing and meeting us where we are, even when we struggle, right? What, what do you, who do you relate to in the story? Maybe, maybe this story starts being a mirror to you and you say, man, I kind of relate to the scribes. And I guess if you relate to the scribes, maybe you're not going to acknowledge that you relate to the scribes, but we'll talk about it anyway. Maybe you think you got it all figured out. I got the stories. I'm full of faith, man. I got this all figured out. Everything's fine in my life, so... Maybe you're the disciples and you're like trying to do the Jesus thing and you're just completely biffing it. Like you're not exercising the demons. You're not, you know, these, the disciples, they were supposed to be doing this and they can't. I brought them to your disciples and they couldn't do it. What a sad story. Maybe that really to you. Maybe you're the crowd and you're just on looking. You're ever on looking. You're watching the religious people. You're watching the Jesus stuff and you're just like, ah, maybe I'll just keep watching. Maybe you're humbly coming steps towards this father and saying, Man, I, I believe. I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Verse 28. And we had, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, one-on-one. We see this a lot in Scripture. The disciples come to Jesus privately. And it's like, hey, we, we got we to lean in, Jesus. What's going on? Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. There's a huge point and assumption that Mark's making here and that I think is not a leap at all. The disciples weren't praying when they were trying to cast this demon out. How true is it that we gather all of our spiritual knowledge, all of our Tim Keller quotes, all of our great Calvinistic slants, or all of our arguments for how the end times work, and we just really figured out. And isn't it an interesting tool of the devil to make sure you have all this confidence? Have confidence in the Lord. Have confidence in the power of Him. And all of a sudden, your actual confidence is in you. You talk the talk of, oh, I look to the Lord. I, but actually, the, the patterns of your life, the secret place when you're alone with the Lord, it's not looking to Him. It's gathering more information so that you can be the person who knows, so that you can be the person who obliterates people on Facebook with your spiritual knowledge, or so that you always have the pithy, cute thing to say about knowledge. So you're the wise one. But you're not praying. <laughs> I think there's an interesting point here to be made. How often do you sit before the Lord humbly and just pray, acknowledging that He's God? He has all authority. You come to him, poor in spirit, like I, I am beneath you and I come to you and I'm only in your presence because of King Jesus. Jesus has all authority. And I'm looking to Jesus. Not passively for an hour on Sunday mornings, not, not randomly when I'm here for mealtime, but I have a posture in my life of looking to Jesus. There's power in prayer. We must be coming to him individually and together in prayer. This is why when we gather for services, we say we're going to preach the word, we're going to sing the word, we're going to show the word, we're going to pray the word. We're going to pray together. We have to. 
This is why when we talk about being a disciple, we say, hey, hey, how is your prayer life? Your one-on-one time with the Lord. How is your scripture time reading about him to know him? So you're not praying to something you make up, but what actually the Lord is. And then how is your time with the church? So you're being refined in your knowledge. You're not just being arrogant with what you think, but the body together is growing as one. Prayer, scripture, and church. Last week, we learned that we need the Spirit to reveal all things to us and to guide us to fully look to Jesus. We said we need the Spirit to look to Jesus in all ways. We need the Spirit to, uh, we need to look to Jesus in all moments of our life. We need to hear the truth of the gospel. We need the Holy Spirit's revelation so we can humbly listen, believe, and understand. We need Jesus to guide our lives by His Holy Spirit so that we can obey and truly live got a few closing thoughts and then we're going to do an activity together in response. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, after listing all these faithful people, um, the kind of closing of that thought, there's this attitude says, therefore, based off all these faithful people, all the stories we know, everything, pick a story Bible in your mind of someone who trusted the Lord. Based off that, because of that person, because of their posture of faith, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, or some translations say the founder and perfecter of our faith, the source, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Set aside all sin, He's the one that endured the cross. He's the only way that can bring you salvation. He is the way, the truth, and life. Listen, before a holy and perfect God, you don't have a shot. I don't have a shot. And the Bible's very clear about that. Like our heart postures are off. Our inclinations are off. And you might be able to tell me about your church attendance and all the good things you've done. And if we, people don't ask this, but maybe you should. Like you just ask someone, why, why is God satisfied with you? Why would God think good of you? And you might be inclined to say, here's this and here's this. And here, Listen, you can't stand before a holy and perfect God apart from Jesus. Only Jesus can save and transform us. Every single thing in your life that isn't good, that isn't right, that isn't going in trajectories that it should, can only be resolved through Jesus. And if your posture isn't praying to him, if your posture isn't looking to him and saying, help my unbelief, help all the places that I lack, it's never going to change. It's going to be in an endless cycle. Wouldn't it be a sick tool of evil to put you on this never-ending Christian rat race of trying to be more, do more, obtain the right niche, and therefore never fully looking to Jesus? This is the lie of our culture. This is the lie that I watch all the youth kids live in, that I live in, that my children live in. Look to this, look to this, look to this. There's this understanding that when we become more spiritual, Oh, I've got these vague intuitions, right? I've got my inclinations. This is not this, we're not, what we're not saying here is that, oh yeah, just lean into your spiritualness. All roads lead to road, man, and just get spiritual. We're just trying to get you to, to say, help me with my unbelief because I lack, man. No, no, there's something very specific that this father does. He seeks out Jesus. He falls before Jesus. He knows Jesus has to be the author and perfecter, but he struggles. And so he's there. He's there seeking Jesus. Is this a posture in your life? Or maybe you're in this realm of like, man, I've got these spiritual inclinations. And so sometimes I feel like I need to just quit cussing more. I got to quit smoking more. I got to, I got to quit, quit being so angry. I got to quit looking at porn. I got to be nicer to my wife. 
Like, whatever it is, you get these vague, okay, and that's the spiritual thing. That's what we need to do. And I'm just going to keep working at that. The Bible says your mind, your heart is wrong, fundamentally wrong. And that's a super offensive message. And it'd be really sexy for me to stand up here and say, just go with your gut and God's going to be moving and you'll know. I actually don't think you will because I don't. I've gotten really passionate about things that are wrong. I've gotten really excited about things that would have damaged me that I would have never ended up here. I would have never married Nikki. And I was so certain this is what I should do. Because we look to our own hearts, look to us and say, this is why I just really know it. And you don't temper it through scripture, through actual time and prayer, through a church community that can speak into your life based off scripture and prayer. It's like, I got this figured out. It reminds me of, of this stupid analogy, but like, like a kid who's like, man, I really want to be a mechanic. I'm going to be, some of you guys, I told the story recently, I'm clearly not a mechanic. But let's say there's a child that wants to be a mechanic. Like, dude, I want to be a mechanic because I saw this movie Cars and it's really great. And the cars talk to you and they get really into being a mechanic. And then 30 years later, you meet that kid and they're just so depressed in their shop full of tools and all these broken cars. And they can't fix any of the cars because the cars won't talk to them. They say, man, I sold the movie cars. Cars talk to me. And that's what got me into cars. I want to be a mechanic because cars are so cool. And they go vroom, vroom, and they talk to me. And it turns out this kid was never supposed to be a mechanic. It should have been a counselor because they want to talk and wrestle through things and have real relationships with people. But their inclination was, well, I like cars. And cars talk to me. We do this all the time in our faith because we don't submit to Jesus. We say, man, my inclinations are right. I've seen the movie. I've read the blog post. I read the book. I got it figured out. Jesus has all authority. Only through him. And this brings us back to our posture of being a disciple. Are you a disciple? Are you a learner? Are you apprentice? This guy comes to Jesus and humbly says, I believe, help my unbelief. Church, do we have this sort of posture where we invite people to look to Jesus and wrestle? Or are we crushing people with our overbearing thoughts of, well, this is what you need. This is what you need. We've got it figured out. Here's your pathway. Or is our pathway simply look to Jesus because he has all authority and the constant posture in life is laying everything down before him? Or are we being too passive as a church and we say, yeah, just, just look to whatever, man. Like just, just pray a little bit and come to church. And we don't ever actually read the gospel and say, Jesus actually calls you things. Jesus says it's hard, that it's a narrow gate. It's a hard path. And the only shot we have is to look at Jesus. We're going to move into a time of response and uh, despite the clock, the temperature, whatever you feel like is distracting you, um, I would encourage you to take this moment. We're just going to have light music playing. And I encourage you to move and connect with the Lord. May this be the Sunday that you decide, I'm going to lay before Jesus this consistent struggle that I have in our marriage. I'm going to lay before Jesus this burden we have over our family. I'm going to lay before Jesus the fact that I consistently won't give my life to him because I don't want to trust him. I want to be in charge of my life. I'm going to lay before Jesus the fact that I gave my life to him when I was a kid, but actually nothing in my life looks like following Jesus. There's not a single ounce of me that says you consistently follow King Jesus. And so I'm going to come to him this morning and say, help my unbelief. I believe in you. But I'm lacking, and I need you because I can't do it on my own. I can't do it on my own. Maybe your lack of belief is simply you, you don't want to 
give up your power and control. You don't want to stand before people and get baptized. You don't want to tell people that you've actually trusted in the Lord and you don't want to make it a corporate thing. You don't want to join the church because there's all that baggage. Like, churches hurt people and it's a conflict. And I just, ah, let's just kind of be in the vague nebulousness of kind of attending. Like, Whatever the Spirit's moving right now. I could say a lot of passionate things, and I could drive home all these things because I'm a passionate person, but I don't know what the Spirit's going to tell you. But what we're going to do is we're going to just have some light music playing. And if you need to move, if you need to grab a hand and come pray up here, do it. If you need to grab a hand and pray where you're at, do it. Maybe you need to give up your unbelief with your money and say, man, I actually need to be sacrificing in giving. I need to mimic the posture of the generous God. And give to others, give to the church. Maybe I need to give up this desire of, of not serving because I don't have time. I need to give up my understanding of time. God, help me with my unbelief. I don't know what your thing is. Let this be the Sunday. This father doesn't just sit at home and hear about Jesus and say, big guy upstairs, just help me. I'm a little struggling here. And mimic some country song or some vague spiritual idea. He chases Jesus down. And he struggles and he doubts and he's not where he wants to be. And his son's not healed. He's full of junk. Religious people aren't helping him. He's struggling. And he still says to Jesus, have compassion on me. I believe. I need you. Help my unbelief. So during this time, that's, that's your script. We're going we're gonna to have a verse up on the screen. I'm going to read it now. The psalmist ends 139 with, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous or idolatrous, wicked ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God, and know me. Jesus sits before you now and says, how long has this been going on? You know. You know how long you've struggled with this doubt, this struggle. And I would encourage you now to grab someone and pray with them, to come talk to us, whatever you need to do to move. I'm going to be up here praying. I'll pray with you. We're going to have some music playing. We'll dim the lights. We're doing all this to try to avoid some distraction. We're not trying to create some emotional moment for you. We just we want to avoid some distraction for the spiritual. I'm going to pray. And then after a few minutes, however long the band feels, they're going to come up here and then we're going to worship together. This is your time to respond to Jesus. I believe. Help my unbelief. God, I pray that you would guide us right now as we respond to you. We don't, we're so limited. Help us to look to you, to hear from you, to listen to you. God, I pray for the ones in here who, who are hard-hearted and, and, and don't want to even acknowledge their lack of belief. And, and may your spirit soften us. May your spirit move us towards a time of submitting to you, of opening our hands. Help us with our unbelief, Father. Thank you for this story. Thank you for your word that shows us that you're constantly leaning in, that you're trying to have a right relationship with us. We can't do it. We need your spirit. We lean on your spirit now. We pray that you would move. You'd give us ears to hear and that our feet would move to what your spirit is guiding this moment.